This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger speaks with Kristen Soltis-Anderson, who is a pollster, speaker, commentator, and author of The Selfie Vote, where millennials are leading America. They discuss the changing landscape of Republican policies and politics. They also focus on the 2024 presidential election and what it means for the future of conservatism in America. Kristen Soltis-Anderson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. Uh, You are known as a Republican pollster and, and writer and as well as a founding partner of Echelon Insights, and really somebody who engages opinion research and analytics. But one of the things I really appreciate over the years getting to know you is that you explain them in a way that I can understand. Uh, you're also the host of a Sirius XM's The Trendline with Kristen Soltis-Anderson. And of course, many of our viewers and listeners know you from your appearances on all the major networks. Uh, just a quick backgrounder for listeners and viewers Polling, you're such a nice and engaging person, and polling gets such a bad rap. What do you have to say to those who just kind of frown and sigh when they hear about the latest polling? Why shouldn't the they polls, frown and sigh? I, I love this first question. The polls are not broken, but they are horribly misused. <laughs> so I, I am coming to you from a big conference that the polling industry has every year. Um, just got together to break down the, okay, how are we doing? Is our industry in flames or are we figuring it out? There have been times over the last few years when the vibe has been more, oh no, our industry is in flames, help, help. Um, We're not there right now. Um, Right now the polls are not broken. Um, And at least for the moment, they seem to be capturing public opinion okay. The midterms were Though some people were pretty surprised by the outcome, their surprise, in my view, was not driven by the polls. Their surprise was driven by an expectation that the polls would be wrong in a particular direction. And when that failed to materialize, they were then surprised by the outcome. Um, But at the moment, you know, I am still feeling good because the industry's realized that, look, we are going to have a big challenge talking to people. We can't just call them up on landline phones anymore. Can't even really just call them up on their cell phone anymore. So we're going to have to get creative. And the sorts of things that 10 years ago at a conference of pollsters would have been considered really avant-garde, you know, experimental, are now becoming the norm. Things like surveys over text message, surveys done online. There are lots of different ways that a pollster like me can try to to find someone like you and get you to take a poll. Uh, And that's good that the the diversity of approaches is good and it means that we're less likely to systemically miss certain types of voters in our research which i think helps us as pollsters get things more right now remember when i said polls are misused that's because the number one thing people use polls for is to try to watch this horse race number right who's up in the pennsylvania senate race are they up by four are they up by five oh now they're up by six Is that real movement in the race? And that is not what polls are mostly used for. Polls are mostly used to understand attitudes on issues, reactions to messages. The horse race stuff is what gets all the coverage, but it's actually not most of what I do and is not most of what uh, polls are used for in practice. Well, you mentioned the midterms and how that uh, perhaps restored or or. It certainly wasn't as bad for the polling sector as it, as the, the previous election. But before we go there, uh, g- give me one your your take on 
the notion that people who are polled, uh, if they're getting these questions that perhaps, you know, you're Republican, here are the questions when I ask for Republican, they kind of give, they kind of want to give them the answer that that doesn't truly reflect their point of view, but just kind of want to, don't want to be, you know, kind of have the poll dismissed, right? So what I'm trying to get at is, tell me you feel about Trump. Someone who's a Trump or conservative who, you know, has mixed views on Trump is not going to satisfy the polls to tell them how they truly feel. They're, they're, they're going to respond, I love him, Nothing, no problems here, because they don't want to feed into a narrative that perhaps they see, you know, kind of swept up by the national media. Give me your take on that. Sure. So you definitely want to make sure you've crafted a questionnaire that is not signaling to a respondent what the right answer is. So an example of, of bad practice would be, I don't know, if I started off a questionnaire by saying, Donald Trump is a known liar. Do you favor or oppose Donald Trump? I mean, like something like that, which is is often, frankly, how you will see questions get worded in, you know, in media conversations. Uh, that's not going to lead to to a true response. At the same time, there has been a lot of research done to understand, is there a shy Trump effect? You know, to what extent are the polls undercounting Trump supporters because people are afraid if I say I like him, then what happens? Um, and almost all of the research on this has really turned up that that's not necessarily the case, that it's less that somebody takes your poll and gives you an answer that's not really on the mark. And it's more just that there are certain types of people that don't take polls at all. So if you're the kind of person that doesn't really want to talk about your point of view, um, the odds are you just may hang up that polling phone call right from the get-go. One of the things that we as an industry are trying to do to keep people on the phone or keep them in the survey is not just pepper them with a bunch of questions about politics. Ask them some questions about things in pop culture. Ask them questions about things just in their daily lives. And that not only gives you sort of richer, deeper insights, but it feels less aggressive to a survey respondent and can yield some real benefits. Fascinating. Let, let's go to this uh, article you wrote in National Review called Lost Youth, Republicans Can't Write Off a Generation. And this really picks up on the midterm uh, that you referenced just earlier. And of course, the quote, red wave never materialized. The Republicans hold a majority in the House of Representatives after the midterms. But of course, that's a very narrow majority, as Speaker Kevin McCarthy is wrestling with as uh, the debt ceiling negotiations go on. And of course, the Senate uh, still resides with the Democrats. And I'll, uh, this is what you wrote. It's, it's a longer piece. But to, to get to the point uh, I want to emphasize is that Part of the reason why is Republicans did not secure their youth vote. That's why they didn't succeed. And uh, 22 midterms are a startling example, you're right, of what happens when Republicans assume that disappointed young voters will stay home until they're older and magically turn conservative. Tell us more about that observation and how the youth vote impacts the midterms and why I sense you think it will continue to impact uh, elections going forward. Sure. Yeah. What, what you just highlighted in that quote is that I find two sort of pieces of wishful thinking on the parts of Republicans. The first is that when younger voters are disappointed in Democrats, as they overwhelmingly are these days, um, that that means they'll say, well, I don't like either party. And so I will stay home. And that's not what we saw in the midterms, even though when I look at polls and, for instance, I say, do you approve or disapprove of the job Joe Biden is doing as president? It is younger voters who are among the most likely to express disappointment with Biden. It's a mistake to look at those polls and think that that means that younger voters will just stay home rather than turn out to the polls. 
And the second mistake that I think Republicans made or piece of wishful thinking is, well, yes, young people identify themselves as more progressive these days, but isn't that always the case? Don't young people always vote more progressive? Um, they'll imagine, uh, they'll, they'll grow up, they'll realize that Republicans are the ones that are the smarter ones with the better ideas about the economy, and we're the ones that are more realistic, and they'll come around to our point of view. And that's not really happening. Um, I first began writing about this topic back in the 20, uh, 2008 election. Um, shortly after Barack Obama was elected, um, I got to work on a uh, big research study trying to understand why did young voters break for Barack Obama by such a wide margin. And at the time, there were a range of theories, right? He's personally charismatic. He understood young people more than uh, you know Republicans did and so on and so forth. But what was striking to me is that even in past elections, you rarely had a younger vote group break by a two to one margin for one candidate. Like This was very unusual. And my theory at the time was this is unusual if it persists and if young voters stay breaking like this for a couple of elections, it'll echo. And that's what we're starting to see. I am a millennial. Back when I first wrote this uh, first research study, um, I was in my mid 20s. Um, I'm a about to turn 40 next year. <laughs> I'm not, you know, a kid anymore. Right. Uh, and, yet, you know, when I look at the polling of my peers, they have not gravitated sharply to the right as they have aged. They have begun voting more and more. Um, there are new voters entering the process who maybe didn't participate in the 2012 or 2016 election, but now they're getting into the process. But they tend to hold some more progressive views, and they're just there was a lack of effort on the part of the right to really reach them over a decade. And that's now uh, bearing some pretty tough fruit for the right, uh, even in midterm elections when the assumptions before were that, oh, these voters won't turn out as much. That's no longer the case. Fascinating. And two, two things I'd love to react to. One, as we look to 2024 and and where the trend seems to be, Donald Trump uh, is leading and again in polling amongst Republican voters. So it's reasonable to expect that Trump could be the nominee. And then Biden, of course, uh, is announces uh, that he'll run for reelection. You really have a unique situation of likely, of course, anything can play out on both sides. Two candidates, the Democratic nominee, incumbent, Republican nominee, who are 78 and older. Yeah. Just with all your experience and work dealing with, quote unquote, youth vote, young vote, the 18 to 30 demographic, what what is this kind of, what is your experience, understanding, kind of how do you then look at uh, the prospect of, of Biden v. Trump and and kind of, is this demographic going to tolerate it? Are they going to sit, you know, where, where do they go? Uh, do they actually go out and vote or are they just totally alienated by this? So first, whenever I bring up the concept of a Donald Trump versus Joe Biden rematch in, say, a focus group of swing voters, the reaction I get is almost visceral. The idea that we are just headed straight headlong into the kind of rematch from hell, if you will, uh, for a lot of these swing voters who have unfavorable views, pretty deeply unfavorable views of both candidates um, it's it is not particularly appealing. And there are real concerns, particularly about Joe Biden, that his uh, th does he have the stamina? Does he have the ability to sort of do the toughest job in the world um, for another four years? At the same time, I would caution you from thinking that this is just something that young voters think or that being an older politician is disqualifying with young voters. 
consider Exhibit A, Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Love him or hate him. There's not a lot about Bernie Sanders that radiates uh, youth, if I <laughs> if I may. But you know, you do find that young voters really like Bernie Sanders. And frankly, we can also think about Ronald Reagan, who did very well with younger voters, despite not necessarily being the youngest president we'd ever had. So being older in and of itself is not a disqualifier to young voters. However, the ability to be older, but convey credibly that you understand that young people nowadays are going through unique challenges, that they are facing things that maybe older generations didn't face, being open to new approaches to solving problems. Those are the sorts of things that no matter how old you are as a candidate, a younger voter is going to want to see you do. You mentioned the the Reagan examples, of course, came out in in your piece, Lost Youth in National Review, and here at the Reagan Institute on Reaganism, no doubt we were paying attention to that. Um, But it was always explained to me the reason why Reagan did so well with that demographic was he was focused on the future. It was always about the future, the 84 campaign, Morning in America. It would seem to be obvious, but give me your your take, what the data shows, that if you're a candidate seeking that demographic, you have to be decidedly focused on tomorrow and not where we are today or certainly where we were yesterday. Uh, And and that's the way you, you kind of capture them. It's not perhaps sufficient, but absolutely necessary. I completely agree. And I think that's one of the big problems that the former president has with trying to reach younger voters is that this message of make America great again is inherently a little bit backwards looking. Um, It suggests a time in America when things were better and we need to reclaim that. And to be sure, I've done a lot of research where I ask people, you know, what decade do you think offered the best quality of life? What decade do you think offered the best uh, culture? You know, those sorts of questions. You find lots of voters, Gen X, uh, particularly, they really love the 1980s. Uh, You know, there are other generations that say, yeah, I think we used to do things better in the past. I'd like to go back to some of that. Um, But for younger voters, while there is a little bit of 90s nostalgia, Generally, you're finding less sort of longing for the past and more of a sense of, okay, we've got big challenges coming ahead. What are we going to do to fix them? And so this message of make America great again, I just think if that is the thing that the right becomes united around again for another, you know, however many years, that it continues to miss younger voters who are not looking to make America anything again, um, that they're they're focused squarely on what is next. One other piece here I'm curious about, as you mentioned, uh, Gen Z, is perhaps we may see, and this is anecdotal, I'm curious if there's data behind it, where given perhaps the excesses of the left, um, you know, wokeism for is, is kind of the throwaway to capture the excesses. The idea that the world is dying because of environmental challenges, that United States is in decline, that we're just this whole kind of narrative that seems to animate much of what the progressive left is is trying to advance is going to have a boomerang effect with Gen Z in the sense that they don't want to be told that it's all going to be, you know, kind of the country they're in uh, is 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 in decline. And, and this notion that we're building towards a more perfect union is something they never hear about. And that may invite uh, that generation to look again uh, to other 
parties, whether it's Republican Party or an alternative mm -hmm. entirely. How much of that are you seeing as, as an opportunity, for example, to get to this lost youth? So I think there's a huge opportunity in being more optimistic. You know, I think I, I take a look at data points where you ask voters, for instance, do you think the next generation will be better off or worse off than you were? And it tends to be older voters that actually are more likely to take that pessimistic view about the future, where young people may say, yeah, we're facing huge problems, but I'm actually relatively confident in our generation's ability to fix them. And I think a lot of times on the left these days, they have lost that ability to have a message that is is optimistic about where where things can go that it's it is very uh you know very apocalyptic and i i think that there is the potential for a real kind of backlash there and you see a little bit of this in you know polling i see of young people um where you know for gen z in some ways they have views on uh a variety of issues that are much more progressive even than millennials. But if you actually look at like the, the Gen Zers who are left and who are conservative, that for them, there is a really significant backlash to what they think has been sort of not a forceful pushback enough against whether it's like free speech on campuses. I mean, a whole host of issues where it is young people who are saying, whoa, 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 I, I this seems this seems like a little much. And I think that if the right had a viable, credible alternative that was interested in reaching them at all, you could certainly see some improvement there um, because I think the left has taken many of these young voters for granted with a message that is not necessarily inspirational. Yeah, that's exactly where I want to go. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have been something that any elected Republican has fully leveraged. I don't quite know, for example, uh, where Governor Youngkin in Virginia, how he did for with, with young voters, he's got a, a more optimistic message, but and hit on some of these excesses, at least with respect to schooling, is the way he would characterize it in terms of parents being involved in what your children learn and, and taking on uh, the teachers union and the like. Someone you've written about in, uh, I love the name of this. This is your uh, your piece that. 2024 edition of the this is the bad place uh but you've also written about not just donald trump president trump here but also governor desantis and maybe perhaps you would think governor desantis might be someone who because he's younger because he's getting after these excesses i'll call him that a younger voter might who's open to this right m might be supportive but you haven't found that just yet uh at least in one area i read where governor desantis focused in terms of education what did you find when you looked at this yeah, so it's, it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag. I mean, there are certainly areas where, uh, for instance, if you look at Governor DeSantis's record on environmental issues in Florida, it's actually been one of his most bipartisan focuses. And being able to say you have a strong agenda on the environment is very appealing to young voters across the political spectrum. Even for young Republicans who can be quite conservative, you wouldn't necessarily think of them as prioritizing an issue like climate change, like you'd find it as the number one issue among young progressives. But nevertheless, you still hear from young conservatives, okay, I don't want the Green New Deal, but let's do something. So there are a handful of issues where I think Governor Miami DeSantis is sinking in Florida, right? So this is the <laughs> yeah, kind of very real yes. to Governor DeSantis. Yes. So there are plenty of opportunities, I think, for somebody like Governor DeSantis to point to his record and say, hey, uh, I'm I'm with you. Uh, you've also seen uh, there there were big divides on foreign policy. And I know we'll talk about this a little later on the right. But this more kind of skepticism of America's uh, leadership in the world or 
what have you, you know, if you are somebody who signals that you would rather look more inward, that may be an attempt, if if maybe a little misguided in the execution, to connect with younger conservatives. Um, the, the challenge somebody like Governor DeSantis is going to have with young people is even among young conservatives, there is still generally a more sort of progressive leaning view on an issue like LGBT issues. We've seen a lot of political sort of dust um, getting kicked up around the issue of abortion with the overturning of Roe versus Wade last summer, and that is still having political reverberations. And in particular, if you're looking for one thing that motivated a lot of those young people to turn out and vote and frankly vote against Republican candidates in the midterm, um, I suspect that's a, a sizable piece of it. And that's actually not something I would have said a decade ago. A decade ago, when I was looking at social and cultural issues, Yes, there were generational divides around things like LGBT rights, but there weren't really big generational divides around um, an issue like abortion. We now do see that divide um, beginning to emerge a little bit more strongly. And so that's just going to make it even more challenging for a pro-life Republican politician um, to make that case. It's, it's, they're going to have to persuade rather than just sort of assume that you've got 40, 50 percent of young people on your side. And, and that's been a general observation of I'm thinking about the Wall Street Journal editorial board has been emphasizing this where Republicans have lost control of this post a Dobbs decision. In other words, they worked for you know, generation plus to realize what they realized in a Dobbs decision. And then it was left to the states and they've coalesced around an increasingly uh, minority point of view in terms of where the party's been and, and alienating, I, I suspect, not just young people, but just Americans overall in terms of what they're advancing in terms of uh, uh, the, the pro-life community. On LGBTQ, you were talking about in the, it, with respect to Governor DeSantis. And so you, Republicans you know, have this libertarian streak and then you got the 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 other camp, which is, you know, the religious right, social conservatives. Is it just simply the case that the libertarian piece of the party is uh, not vocal enough, not strong enough, or is, is, is migrating away from Republican politics and is falling into that independent sphere? Well, let's take the issue of schools, for instance. Let's say you are more libertarian-leaning, and you are not really interested in uh, the state telling you how to raise your children. Um, so you may personally be very you know, libertarian in the sense that you don't want the government to make it harder for someone to be LGBTQ, but at the same time, you also don't want the state telling you how to be a parent. You know, there are, there are I think, interesting ways that these issues cut coalitions differently than maybe prior decades worth of social issues would have cut these coalitions. I still think there is a pretty strong libertarian streak on the right, but libertarian doesn't necessarily always equal socially progressive. And in this case, you're seeing with this debate over schools and parents' rights and what have you, almost a more sort of libertarian uh, infusion, an infusion of libertarianism into social conservatism of, look, I, I want to be able to raise my children with the values I see fit, and I don't trust that the state is doing a very good job of it. Who do you think that's out there as elected Republican in a state, a governor who has effectively done this? When this, I mean, building up that winning coalition, including young people. 
Well, Youngkin is at the moment a pretty interesting example. Uh, and I, I apologize because I don't know the exit polls off the top of my head on this one, um, nor do I, I recall specifically like what percentage of the electorate was younger voters when he was elected. But what I think was so interesting about his election is he really tried very hard to bridge divides between what does the, the core of the conservative right really want and where is the overlap between the things that they want and the things that sort of a swing voter would want? Uh, there is overlap between those two things. That is a Venn diagram with considerable overlap. But I think sometimes it's much too easy for uh, for the right as a movement to get caught up in the things where there's actually not as much overlap. Yes. Like the things that are really animating to the right, but there's not a lot of resonance with the middle. And someone like Youngkin figured out ways to like focus on where that overlap existed and speak in a language that was unifying rather than dividing. So I, I think he is a fascinating example. You know, I look to the Northeast where it's fascinating. You have a bunch of states that uh, you would think in a never in a million years would vote for Republican. <laughs> yet you have Vermont, the most yeah. one of the most beloved governors in the country is a Republican running Vermont. Who'd have yeah. thought? Um, you know, so those are those are the kinds of places, you know, New Hampshire, Governor Chris Sununu, he is beloved there sure. um, and has a pretty broad coalition, I think does pretty well with younger voters in his state. Um, so there are some examples of folks who are trying to, to bridge those divides. We're here with Kristen Soltis Anderson uh, on the Sirius XM. Her show is called The Trend Line with Kristen Soltis Anderson. And of course, uh founding partner of Echelon Insights. You know, when you talk about Vermont, Massachusetts, we had Maryland, right? And of course, Glover, Governor Glenn Youngkin, Virginia. These are Republican governors, popular, winning by, you know, bringing in others uh, beyond Republicans to get elected. And is it more complicated than to win in a state that's not a red state? You have to kind of find these areas of overlap. Whereas if you're in a red state, it's all about winning the primary and you can't advance a strategy that would appeal to independents or even Democrats because they'll never make it out of the primary. Well, even in a state like Virginia, somebody like Governor Youngkin still had to have the trust and support of the conservative base in order to win. But he was very savvy about doing so, again, by focusing on those areas of overlap where he was able to take positions and, and appeal to the conservative base, but in a way that wouldn't make him unelectable in a general election. So even in a state that is a blue or purple state, you still have to deal with that dynamic of how do I get through uh, my primary, um, even if that's not the finish line, there's still another election to go. Um, there still is a, a need to make sure that you've appealed to to the core uh, the core base voters in your party. At the same time, there's no guarantee that even if you are in a state that you think of as a pretty red state, that that means you and your positions will definitely win. I mean, we've seen a number of red states that have passed. You know, laws raising minimum wage, laws legalizing marijuana, you know, even in a red state, you could have statewide votes that go a little more progressive. Or you take a state like Georgia. If you went back 15 years and you told me that a state like Georgia was suddenly going to be breaking for Democrats and would be like the closely fought, highly contentious Atlanta media market is getting gazillions of dollars spent in it kind of state, that would have been a little surprising. And yet because of the growth of the Atlanta suburbs, the influx of college-educated voters, the reorientation of some of these coalitions, you know, a state like Georgia, where previously you would have said, oh, the Republican just has to win the primary and they'll be fine. Well, no, no. Now you do have to fight a pretty tough uh, race. 
Texas is another example where I have been hearing for a really long time, like, oh, Texas might turn blue. Oh, Texas might turn blue. Well, and it's never really come to pass, except that it's not going to happen until it happens. And then when it happens and everybody goes, oh, my goodness, Texas just voted for a statewide Democrat. Oh, my goodness. Um, do I think it's super likely? No, not in the immediate short term. But do I think it's impossible? No. And so even if you are running statewide in a state like Texas, you cannot just take for granted that, oh, I've got this. This will be fine and only play to the base. You have got to be able to win those Houston suburbs. You've got to be able to win those Dallas suburbs, the sorts of places that used to vote Republican reliably, but not so anymore. And we saw that in 2022, people, you know, the, the notion you're going to vote down ballot, people are going across, right? And 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 making yeah. choices and you can't take for granted. Fascinating set of points. I do want to talk about foreign policy and national security and get a sense of where Republican voters are, conservative voters are, you've, you've helped me and the Reagan Institute over the years thinking through this, understanding this. But before we go there, one other issue, which perhaps is a bridge between kitchen table issues for Republicans and for Americans writ large and national security is border security. And of course, right now uh, we have the Title 42 uh, where the emergency with respect to COVID uh, has been removed and the influx of of those coming crossing the border illegally we're watching on, on 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 tv and the biden administration is trying to manage that perhaps Kristen, just contextualize for us where republicans are vis-a-vis border security and a willingness perhaps to get to immigration reform and it, it seems to be almost um, a cliche at this point where if you're a conservative or republican you have to say okay we can't do anything on immigration reform until we secure our border got it but what does this actually mean uh and and we're and can republic can a republican seeking office comfortably say that to get elected and then just sit on their hands on these issues uh when they're in office so the problem with an issue like immigration and i i put other issues like guns, for instance, into the same sort of bucket. You have this weird dynamic where if I ask in a survey, do you support or oppose increasing the background checks that people must undergo in order to own a firearm? Or if I ask in a survey, do you support or oppose um, making uh, the dreamers legally allowed to stay in the U.S., you know, enacting legislation that would enshrine DACA, you know, keep DACA in law? Um these are the sorts of things where you'll see huge majorities of Americans, including often majorities of Republicans, saying, like, sure, I'm okay with this. And so you would think, well, why doesn't it wind up getting put into law? And I think the reason is that there's this total lack of trust that if you give an inch to the other side, even on something that you kind of like, that that won't then spiral into like five different policies that you didn't want. So on an issue like immigration, if you are a Republican, even if you're someone who says, yes, for a child who was brought here as a child, they did nothing wrong. They just are here and now they want to make a life. And we can't possibly deport them back to a country where they, they they don't know. You know, they might not know the language. They grew up here in America. This is wrong. But if I say yes to this, what other am I opening some Pandora's box? Because I don't trust that the left is just going to stop at this. I don't trust that that's going to be the end. I believe that they may want to loosen X, Y, or Z or roll back policies one, two, and three. And, and it's that total lack of trust that means it's hard to get people on board with anything that's like comprehensive reform. So it used to be that when we had this conversation about immigration reform, we said, look, we got to do these two things at the same time. Right. You have to do the reform with the border security. They have to come in sequence, but they have to be paired together. 
And I'm, I'm increasingly skeptical of the idea that these big, comprehensive bills are the way to get things done, that instead little bills where you say, nope, we are just keeping it limited. We're not trying to open Pandora's box here. We can all agree that we need to fix H-1B visas. We can all agree that we need to fix the asylum system. We can all agree that we need to get more immigration judges down at the border. Those are the sorts of things that I wonder if they were pursued as smaller bits and pieces of legislation, if you'd see more comfort than you do around and big, it, comprehensive. That makes sense to me. And and you mentioned uh, uh, dealing with uh, gun, you know, gun control, gun legislation. You did have an example of that about a year ago with respect to red flags, right? And after the uh, Texas massacre, you had someone like Senator John Cornyn actually engage and do a kind of more piecemeal, smaller uh, yeah. gun legislation uh, with Democrats. Um, again, that certainly hasn't solved the problem. It's an example of where Republicans went someplace where kind of prior to that, many thought they wouldn't even go, given that the, the sort of mentality, if I give an inch, then what am I going to give up? What leverage am I giving up? And the like. Uh, yeah. let, let's migrate to foreign policy and national security and where Republicans are. And you've written a lot about this. And you, you, one one recent article wrote uh, in May, younger generations of both parties are trending away from a more muscular U.S. foreign policy worldview, world excuse me, and the Republican Party as a whole is less and less sure that the conflict in Ukraine affects American interests. Talk more about what you've been seeing and, and why Republicans are, 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 are trending this way uh, broadly with respect to American leadership in the world and more specifically with Ukraine. And then we'll do a follow-up in terms of Trump supporters and DeSantis supporters as well. Interesting point you have there. Sure. So the, 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 po the politics of foreign policy look very different today than they did two decades ago. Um, and part of that is the influence of Gen X and younger voters within the Republican Party. So what we did in our survey research is we took – they said, if you wanted to figure out who has a kind of, as you use, muscular, assertive, whatever you know, adjective you want to use for foreign policy worldview, what are the questions that would help identify who those people are? So I, I canvassed around to a couple of people I know who work in the foreign policy world and said, you know, if you were picking like five questions that would determine, okay, if you say yes to these five questions, then you're with me. And we so we picked questions around things like. Um, the defense of Taiwan, um, a questions about uh, whether or not, uh, you know, the United States has something at stake in the war in Ukraine, um, questions about uh, defense spending and whether cutting defense spending as a way to balance the budget, would that be a good idea or a bad idea? So we had some questions on China, we had some questions on Russia, we had some questions on defense spending generally. Um, and it, then we took a look and we said, okay, how many of our respondents actually do agree on five on five? Um, they are, yes, uh, Russia winning the war in Ukraine would be a bad thing for the United States. Yes, we should come to the defense of Taiwan. Yes, it would be bad if China overtook us as the most powerful nation in the world, those sorts of things. Um, and we found that for older Republicans, they're very much on board, including with things like aid to Ukraine, um, that they they are generally of the mind that the world is better off when America is in a leadership role. It's younger conservatives where that is less the case. Um, and you have to, you know, I wrote about this actually in a paper for you all. Um, yes. I think this was in 2019 um, about the, the challenge that uh, those who are advocates of a strong, robust American foreign policy and global leadership are facing with young people is that many of them can't point to a time where they say, 
this is a moment when America was a leader in the world and it was a good thing. If you remember the Cold War, if you remember Reagan's presidency, you have a clear example in your lifetime of when American leadership was very good for the world. But if you have come of age after that and your memories are things like the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you may have some real questions about whether America's ability to bring about good in the world, like, are we actually that good at it um, or, or not? And you see that reflected in young people really unsure that American leadership in the world dramatically affects them, that beating other countries in competition like China, that that really affects them. And so that to me is just a big, big mission for anyone who supports a robust uh, assertive foreign policy is to recognize there is a generation that does not just sort of take for granted that American leadership around the world is good. And for those interested, it's on the Reagan Institute website, how the post 9-11 generation views American power, which was Christian wrote for us as part of our Reagan Institute strategy group. Really interesting paper. And as reflecting on that in preparation for this conversation, I wonder how much things have changed, Kristen, in light of the fact that, yes, the frame of reference for that post-9-11 generation, maybe Iraq and Afghanistan, what Democratic and Republicans have called endless wars. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we've seen the emergence of China, Russia's aggression, invasion of Ukraine, and the peace and prosperity that Americans have enjoyed, including the post-9-11 generation, is at risk, not necessarily because of American leadership per se, but because revanchist powers seeking, seeking, excuse me, to destabilize a system that has been very good for Americans, very good for our economic prosperity. Do you see that? Maybe talk about some of the recent polling uh, you, you wrote about in, in May, how China and their uh, assault on human rights, think about Hong Kong or, or the case in Ukraine, is impacting the mindset of these voters, even though they have doubts mm -hmm. about American leadership in the world. Yeah, so I think that when it comes to talking about the issue of China, if it is framed as competition and we need America to beat China, that for a lot of young voters, that just seems very disconnected because for them, they don't necessarily see it as competition to begin with. If you are an older voter, it's clear that it's competition. You remember what the Cold War looked like. You know what it's like when you are fighting for global dominance and 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 uh, you you can see that this is is that there the similar contours popping up. But if you're younger, you know, a world where China has a strong economy and the US has a strong economy, well hey, that'd be a pretty good world, right? That's not what you know for for I think for young voters competition as a frame just doesn't necessarily resonate. They don't think that America is that uh, is that far ahead of China now, and they don't think that we're losing that much ground to China. We're older voters. They do think America is in the ahead, but is losing uh, ground. Instead, what I think is valuable for younger voters is to frame it around sovereignty, to frame it around you should be able to live the life that you want to live. You should be able to, uh, and you shouldn't be uh, faced with a hostile foreign government that definitely doesn't hold the same values you do on human rights, on LGBT issues, on a whole host of other things. Um, this government having an influence over the entertainment you watch, um, the information you are able to consume, the products you are able to buy, uh, that's, I think, this idea of like defending yourself versus going out and competing, I think has more of an ability to resonate, particularly for a younger generation that may think that going out and being aggressive doesn't feel quite right for them. 
but being defensive of uh, of us here at home may be a, a sort of a, a an easier uh, entry point for making the argument. That's a great insight, and and the language that you're talking about competition is confusing. It's it's not even uh, I think clarifying for policymakers. Perhaps it's descriptive, but not clarifying in terms of what we want to achieve. And and kind of a values-based assessment of, of Russia or China, I think is a more honest way to think about the why uh, our sovereignty and our peace is, is being challenged. Um, you know, we think about the assault on Hong Kong or the treatment uh, of Uyghurs. I mean, these are the sorts of things that really does kind of assault American values. And I would think, you know, certainly President Reagan didn't shy away from calling that out uh, in his day, with respect to the Soviet Union, and I think the extent that Americans will get behind what is a bipartisan kind of establishment consensus with respect to China really requires more more of the framing of the of the kind you described. So uh, I, I'm on board with what you say, Kristen. Uh, we're going to move just in a moment to our our lightning round as we wrap up this conversation. But before we, we do. Give me your take, and this goes back to we're talking about a, a potential President Biden, President Trump matchup, where you have candidates who are deep in their 70s, early 80s, who are not popular um, in terms of the overall electorate, some not even within their own party. The possibility in this environment for a third-party candidate, you hear murmurings, I think the establishment point of view uh is, hey, that just doesn't work in the system anymore. There's no way someone could get in the race and and, and kind of be that al alternative. But when you have two candidates carrying the negatives they carry uh, in the world of polling and the data that you absorb and, and look at, is that actually viable, this go around? I think an interesting uh, analogy, or if you take a look back at past presidential elections, take something like the 2012 election, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, at the time, you would hear voters griping about their choices, but actually both of those men had a net positive, favorable brand image with, with the American public. Um, 2000, George W. Bush and Al Gore. Americans generally liked them. They may not have, individuals may not have liked both of them, but you had like most Americans like Al Gore, most Americans like George W. Bush just fine. Um, in 92, that was not the case. In 1992, and, and both of these figures, by the way, their brand images have sort of ebbed and flowed over time. I think there's a great deal of affection nowadays for the legacy of George H.W. Bush. And Bill Clinton's legacy has become very complicated for a whole host of reasons. The world is different than it was in 1992. Um, but in 1992, both George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, they had relatively high negatives and high negatives within their own parties. And that led to this opening for Ross Perot to run. Now, Ross Perot didn't become president. Ross Perot didn't win a state. But he did put up double-digit numbers. He got on the stage for presidential debates. And I think that's an interesting example of, like, what could happen again? If you have Donald Trump and if you have Joe Biden, if you have two candidates who have these sky-high unfavorables and you have Americans desperate for anything different, could you get a third party candidate? Now, I don't suspect that person becomes president of the United States, but could they put 15, 20 or 15, 20 points on the board in a couple of states? Possibly. You've got all sorts of things like ballot access also to worry about. But I would encourage people think about 1992 and the conditions that led to Ross Perot. 
That's a great that, analogy. That's what I think of when people ask me that question. And my recollection of Ross Perot, at least the Republican narrative, the the George H. W. Bush, you know, uh, camp was he was the reason why Bill Clinton won. In other words, he took away the votes that H. W. Bush needed. Is it clear to you? I guess it depends entirely on who that third candidate is. Which candidate would benefit if it was a a President Biden? the President Trump matchup, which candidate would benefit most from a third party serious candidate weighing in of the kind that Ross Perot? It is not clear to me specifically which, like that there is a natural way that it would default. Um, and my my hesitation, at, so I, I say flippantly, like, oh, they could get 15, 20%. Here's the difference between 92 and now. Is in 92, if I asked voters who wound up voting for Bill Clinton, like, do you think that the re-election of George H.W. Bush would be apocalyptic for the country? They probably wouldn't say yes. They probably didn't like him. They wanted to do something different. But I don't think they'd think it was like the apocalypse for the country and vice versa. Now our polarization is so intense that if you are someone who likes Donald Trump, even a little bit, the idea of Joe Biden being president seems like the end for another four years, seems like the end of the world and vice versa. And so if you are somebody who goes, oh, I really don't like Joe Biden that much, but man, do I not want Donald Trump to be president? Yeah, you might find a third party candidate appealing, but if in your gut, you're worried that voting for that third party candidate could in any way lead to Donald Trump being president or could in any way lead to Joe Biden being president, you might not do it. So you may see a rise in people not wanting to feel like they've thrown their vote away um, because of the heat, heated polarization that we're in. Fascinating point. Kristen, we're going to go to our lightning round. Wonderful conversation. Thank you for being on. Here's where you share with us your favorite Reagan book speech or quote. What do you have? Uh, uh, people say that I am a great, I'm going to, I can't believe I'm going to butcher this quote on a Reaganism podcast, but it is the quote that essentially says I, the people called me a great communicator, but it was that I was communicating great things. Mm. Um, I love that quote because so often in my field, I am asked to help people come up with messaging. They have a point of view and they want to figure out how to communicate it most effectively. And a lot of times people think that that just means finding the words that work, right? If I find the one right snappy word or phrase, everybody will agree with me. And I love that Reagan quote because it is a reminder that you cannot just have the right words and phrases. The underlying idea has to be something that is compelling. It has to be something that speaks to somebody's values, their interests. You can't just put fancy words on a bad idea. You have to communicate great things. And then once you have something great you want to communicate, by all means, let's find the words that work. Let's put the right phrasing on it. But sometimes people like miss that important piece of the puzzle that you can't. It's not just let's find the message or the words that will resonate. But like, let's have the underlying idea, content, values. That's what's going to really resonate with people. And Reagan understood that. Kristen, fantastic quote uh, and explanation. Totally resonates us with us here at the Reagan Institute, where we are in the business of advancing ideas and principles that were relevant for the 40th president and we still think are irrelevant today. We'd love to have you back again in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.